either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Yeah, well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry? You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Somebody just told me it's like two weeks from Thanksgiving. That can't be true. That's crazy. <laughs> it is true. We've got our first holiday movie. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast. She is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. We'll get to Santa in a minute, but first, after swapping bodies with a deranged serial killer, a young girl in high school discovers she has less than 24 hours before the change becomes permanent. It's freaky. It turns out... Where am I? I didn't get killed. Oh my God, why do I sound like that? I woke up in the killer's body. <laughs> The Blissfield Butcher strikes again. Don't freak out. Ah! You're black. I'm gay. We are so dead. And not only is that psycho wearing my body, he's killing it. Oh, my God. It's a slaughterhouse. I have, like, less than six hours to swap back or I'm going to be stuck in this body forever. Ah! I want my body back. Come and get it. Because today, as we record, it is Friday the 13th. Yeah, and this, this is one of those things where once you realize what they're doing, mixing Freaky Friday and Friday the 13th, you're like, why didn't somebody like me think of that already? <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's so perfect. It really is. It's so perfect. And if you've seen the trailer, you know it's highlighted by Vince Vaughn uh, swapping souls with a teenage girl. And if you think that's comedy gold, you're absolutely right. Oh, you really are. It's so much fun. And this is the writer-director who did Happy Death Day, which was such a giddy, fun take on the genre of, of a slasher. And this is another one where it's like, they, they like this format, they like the genre, the, the slasher format, and they're like, how can we freshen it up? And this is the way to do it. Yeah, it's Christopher Landon. Yes, Michael Landon's son. He not only directs, but he co-writes with Michael Kennedy. Now, he's the same writer from Happy Death Day, yes, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah, and they do. They really have a vibe on this. It's, it's clear that they like the genre that they're sending up, and they have a great time doing it. And and what's great about it, if if you think about Freaky Friday and Friday the 13th, well, you know, are they going to... Are they going to go more with comedy or more with horror? You know, they do both because this is funny. It's also bloody. It's rated R. Yeah, it is. And it's so there are my, I have two favorite things about this movie. And one is Vince Vaughn, which we can talk about in a second. The other thing I love is the horror and the way that this writer and director duo, it's almost like wish fulfillment. I mean, they go through and basically pick off in very grisly manner yeah. everybody they hated in high school. I love I love the way the the uh, tone that they give it because Especially me, and I think you too, we really didn't like at all Happy Death Day 2. Correct. Because it's, it's not a, a horror movie at all, really. No. Uh, but, but, but this is in a fun way, because plenty of people die, and there's plenty of blood spilled, but at the same time, it's so much fun, as these Vince Vaughn starts out playing the Blissfield Butcher, mm -hmm. and he's a serial killer that seems to hunt the kids always around homecoming. Well, of course, it's around homecoming, and he's out in full force killing, and he gets all he's, he's invades the home of this um, that has a lot of antiques in it, a lot of antiquities, and he grabs this knife that's in under glass to uh, do some killing, and it has these magical powers in it, and next thing you know, his intended victim, this 15-year-old girl, Millie, played by Catherine Newton from uh, Blockers, mm -hmm. she and he switch souls. So they wake up the next morning, and he, <laughs> she has the body of Vince Vaughn, and the killer now is 
Millie, the 15-year-old girl. And hijinks ensue. I do like the girl, Catherine. I think that she does a, a pretty decent job of just suddenly being quiet and stealthy and evil. And she's lurking and looking at what she's going to do. But Vaughn is priceless. And one of the things I really appreciate about this is that it isn't comedy based on a guy acting like a girl, right? It is comedy. It's physical comedy where if you think about, I mean, one of the first things that happens is that he keeps running into, like, low-hanging branches because she's, <laughs> she, at one point he hits his head, he goes, oh my god, I'm a giant. Because yeah. he is. He's such a big person. Yeah, and they take advantage of that as as it, it only makes sense because, yes, he is. He's six foot five or six six or something like that, and in this world, that does. It makes him a giant, and they and they, she doesn't know what to do with all of that. She just doesn't. Right, right. <laughs> and, and and then at the same time, you get this crazed, devious killer, and he almost immediately immediately recognizes the benefits of looking like her. Right. And he, how he can take advantage of that to check off some more victims. Right. And it is. It's it's just fun. There are stretches where you you go a little a few minutes without laughing, but then it comes back, and, and by the end, I was really enjoying it. Yeah, I, I liked the supporting cast a lot. I liked the way that they set up all of the different sort of dynamics. You know, the only thing, and this this is not uncommon, uh, I think, in a movie where the lead is supposed to be sort of frumpy, and in fact, she is literally, she if, like walking down the street, I would think, that's the most stunning person I've ever seen right. in Columbus, Ohio. I mean, this girl, Catherine, she's beautiful, and she's playing somebody nobody's ever really given a second look at. That's not true. Every boy in your high school would want to go out with you. The way it went on, though, I started to wonder, were they doing that on purpose to make fun of or do a wink wink at the at the types of movies that they're sending up that do just that maybe but i i get you because yeah i thought the same thing she talks about oh there's no boy uh you would have plenty of boyfriends. yes you would yeah but, but other than that i mean that's yeah. a pretty small it is you know i mean there's an early scene when when uh vince vaughn wakes up right where she wakes up inside his body in his sort of you know scary creepy house where he lives and this this drug addict this old man Oh my God! It's just priceless. It's the, it's just such a funny scene where this high school girl is. Tr- she doesn't know where she is. She doesn't know why she looks like this. She cannot figure out for the life of her why this person is talking to her or what he's saying. But yeah. she's she's like, do I look like this big giant Vince one? Do I look like a girl? And the guy was like, see, you do have drugs. You're clearly on drugs. It was very funny. Yeah, and so, but even though it's set in the world of high school, that this is not for families. This is rated R, <laughs> and it's there's there's death involved and blood, but also it is. It's just a lot of fun. Vince Vaughn is fantastic, and especially if you like the horror genre, you're going to love what they do with it here, and that is freaky. All right, next up is the story of Santa Claus contending with a hitman sent from a disappointed child. This is Batman. I've come for your head, Batman! Dashing through the snow No one horse open, You think you're the first? Think I got this job because I'm fat and jolly? So here is the most polarizing film of the week. Oh, yes, it is. This one, and I tried to give as much of a warning this morning on our on our TV gig as I could, because I was saying that 
I liked it, but I'm trying to say only a certain segment of the audience is going to like this because there are going to be people that hate it. Yeah. I mean, there are people that hate it already just right. because Mel Gibson, with his baggage, is being cast as Santa Claus. And I totally get that. But right away, I think that sends the sort of message that these filmmakers are going for. It gives you a, an early clue into what kind of film this is going to be. And I have to say, I enjoyed it. It's not perfect, but I enjoyed it. And if you like a dark dark comedy, then that's the first clue that, that, that you might like this movie. It tells the story of Santa Claus in such a serious way as it treats him like a struggling businessman. And Mel Gibson is Chris Kringle, and the North Pole Enterprise is struggling because he operates with a contract from the government, but they only pay by the piece, by the toy. And lately, many more kids have been naughty, at least in Santa's eyes, so he's been giving out a lot more coal and down on the toys, so, you know, times are, times are tough. And one of the kids who gets a lump of coal is this spoiled rich kid, I mean ultra-rich kid named Billy, and when he gets that lump of coal, he does not take it lightly, and he hires a hitman known as Skinny Man. That's the only name that we get for him. Walton Goggins! Played by Walton Goggins, God, I love him so great. much. He hires him to kill Santa Claus, and it turns out Skinny Man, he's got his own grudge that he's been holding against uh, the fat man, for years and years and years. So he's only too happy to head to the North Pole and spill some blood on that snow. So that's basically the premise. But at the same time, you get this real, really detailed look. I mean, they are very serious about treating Santa as this businessman. And the writers, directors are the Nelms brothers, Esham and Ian Nelms. And some of this... I thought was very effective dark comedy. The, the only problem here is I think they needed to lean a little bit one way or the other because they, their, their metaphor is, is treated of, of, of Santa as a businessman, of the whole operation as a business, even down to the elves mm-hmm. and, and, how, and what they eat and how they operate. And all of that is treated so straight-laced and, and so serious that sometimes it gets in the way of the comedy. There's a couple of lines, especially there's one dropped by the head elf that I thought was very funny, but it land, there's almost a little bit of confusion after he says it. Like, is, is that funny? Or because we're in this really seriously portrayed business environment of the North Pole. But I thought a lot of it was effective. Mel Gibson, uh, say what you want about him, I thought his performance was right on. I mean, very dark, very confrontational, very gruff and cynical. And he's Part of it, part of his his um, appeal, is the chemistry he has with Ruth Kringle, Mrs. Claus, and she's played by Marianne Jean Baptiste. I love her. You'll she's know great. her if you see her. She's she's just one of those people. She's she turns up all the time in all kinds of things. But she was in In Fabric last oh. year, which we loved, and she she is she's so good and just sort of you know I'll make some cookies. Just so, yeah, they have a great chemistry yeah, together. She is the great balance to his cynical nature. She's very calm and very wise in her in her cookie baking, but she's got more going on than just that. And you can tell that she contributes a lot to this to this enterprise. And they have a fantastic chemistry, but this one's bloody too. I mean, if you don't <laughs> want to see Santa Claus in some gunplay and in a shootout with people at the North Pole, I mean, that's where this movie goes. It, it, it's, it takes it very, very seriously at the same time while it's delivering really dark comedy, you would say coal black comedy, <laughs> and also social commentary yeah, about everything definitely. from elitism to the military-industrial complex to capitalism itself is all in the sights of this movie. So it is. I think it's going to 
to be very, very polarizing. And you can check some of the reviews out there. There are some people that hate Yeah, it got savaged by a movie. lot of people. But, but you know what? If you keep an open mind and really think to yourself, why why would they do this? Why would you do this to Santa Claus? Well, it's a good question. Yeah. Think about that, and maybe this, this movie has some satisfying answers for you. At least it did for us, and that is Fat Man. Next up, we got one that I think you'll be hearing around awards season in 1840s England. Acclaimed but overlooked fossil hunter Mary Anning and a young woman sent to convalesce by the sea develop an intense relationship, altering both of their lives forever. This is Ammonite. Miss Anning, I've often heard your reputation discussed in the Geographical Society in London. Is there something you wanted, sir? My wife. She hasn't been at all well of late. She suffers from melancholia. I want her to walk the shoreline with you, learn from you. I'm not looking for an apprentice. I would pay a premium for a private audience. I don't like the water. It pleases me you've struck up a friendship together. I don't want to go back to the life I had before you. What about my life? This is writer-director Francis Lee's biopic about a paleontologist in Victorian England whose work was very much used and uh, credit was very much ignored. And Yeah, and say the little tidbit that you found out about her. The rhyme, the tongue twister, she sells seashells by the seashore, was in fact written about Mary Anning. That's great, because that's what she does in yeah. this movie. She's by the seashore, and she's played by Kate Winslet, and she is very introverted. She yes. doesn't really like to be bothered. No. She doesn't. She has a hard time making ends meet with this, but it's, it seems that she's just going to trudge along and leave me alone, and I don't want to talk to you really. But when this rich guy comes calling and offering this money, she has to take him up on it. He wants to observe Learn, her yeah. methods a little bit, but then it turns out what he really wants, he wants to leave his wife, who is suffering from melancholia, right. is what he says, to convalesce there and get the sea air and all that stuff. And he leaves her there by paying, you know, he convinces uh, Mary to do that because of how much he's paying. And Mary also lives with her mother. Mm -hmm. her, uh, her mother lives there, too. So so uh, the rich man goes off and leaves his wife, Charlotte, played by Sir Ronan, to convalesce there. And she takes an interest. She wants to learn and she wants to help. And they grow closer and closer until they become lovers. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting thing because, uh, really, I don't think you can go wrong if you have Kate Winslet and Trisha Ronan in your cast. No, not really. Uh, they really are two of the absolute best um, actors working today, or and, maybe ever. And we should say that even though this character, this main character, these are these real people, this is a fictionalized account. Yeah, there is no reason to believe that Mary Anning was a lesbian. There's no historical evidence that she was. There's no historical evidence that she wasn't. And as I have pointed out many times, I've probably seen seven different biopics about Emily Dickinson, and only one of them actually addresses the fact that she was a lesbian. Right. So the others are all fictionalizing this heterosexual lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So I have no issue with the fact that maybe she was. Right. She, these two people were very close, and this is an interesting story. To tell what what I think that it the reason I think that it works is that the bigger story they're telling is about the scientist we've never heard of who who we should have heard of because uh, because she made some amazing discoveries but because of a patriarchal society that limited her yeah. we don't know that so this is in, in doing it this way obviously you know the only reason that these two can't be together 
And in fact, in a lot of ways, the only reason they can be together at all is because the patriarchal society doesn't think that it's really happening. So <laughs> I think it was just a, a more interesting way to capture an audience's attention to say basically the same thing, which is to say it was a tough time to be a woman. And Kate Winslet really brings out the feeling in her character that how she's been affected by just that. Yes. Trying to, in this case, live her life and, and deal with the feelings that she has and feel that she can't. She can't be herself, so she withdraws. Yeah. And, and I think that's really is part of the, the great performance. They're both great. Yeah, but... you, you get the feeling from her from her performance that every time someone says something to her, she's looking at this person and weighing in what way is an injustice being carried out right yeah. now. Yeah. Like, before she responds to anything, before yet, yeah, she's very, very withdrawn because of, obviously, an entire lifetime of just being ill-used. And also... There are a couple scenes of pretty intense sexuality, but I was very interested in the way that Francis Lee shot them. First of all, there's no music whatsoever, right. and that always helps to cut down on the quote-unquote titillation of the scene. Mm-hmm. It was obviously very important to show their their attraction was a physical one, but I thought it was really dialed down as far as the, the lurid nature. I didn't feel that it was. No, I agree with you. On the downside, I think there are two issues in the film. One is that, although I truly, I think Saoirse Ronan is just a magnificent performer, I didn't as much believe her side of the attraction. It felt very sudden to me. So I didn't completely buy that. And the other thing is that just on the whole, it's almost impossible not to compare this film with Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which was a masterpiece. That's the thing. I think anyone who has seen Portrait of a Lady on Fire, is this film is going to suffer. Not because it's a bad movie. It's a very good movie. But because that one was so, so good. Yeah, it really... I mean, that Portrait of a Lady on Fire is a once-in-a-lifetime kind of a film. And Everything about it. The story it told, the performances that they got, the cinematography, the environment yeah. that it created. I mean, everything about it was so magnificent and unusual. But there's so much about the two stories that are similar. Very. That if you've seen one, it is going to suffer a little bit. But still, we recommend this. Um, it's really well done, and the, the acting, as, as we said, we expect both of these two, as usual, to be uh, right. around, <laughs> around and, and considered at awards time. And for that alone, but there is more. It's, 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 it, it's a story that draws you, and I especially like how it ended, mm-hmm. and we're certainly not going to spoil anything, but I, I like the direction that it took. And that is Ammonite, and it is in theaters starting this weekend. Next is the story of a young British mother struggling to reclaim her life after a brutal acid attack leaves her severely scarred. This is Dirty God. You've healed well, Jade. We're really pleased with your progress. Plastic surgery go wrong for you, love. I'm damned. We ain't damned. Mum, can you lend me some money? This is clinic online that can fix my face. My God's different to your God. My God's a dirty God. What happened to you? It ain't got nothing to do with God, you know. You can tighten it or loosen it however you like. She's listening. Can we tell you a story? (laughs) Well, this is one, again, not going to be the feel-good movie of the year at all, but one that's really, really worth seeing. It is amazing. It's an amazing, amazing film. And it's essentially a coming-of-age film, honestly. The uh, the lead, Jade, you don't know how old she is, but she's young enough that she's still living with her own mother, even though she has a two-year-old of her own. So she's probably, you know, not long out of her own teens. Right. And she's recovering from, you don't find out for a while what happened, you know, um, that left her so scarred. It's an acid attack, you know, but you don't really know 
a lot of the details about it. One of the things that um, strikes you about this movie is how understated it is and how, again, very, uh, very little use of score. They do very little emotional manipulation of the audience. And I think uh, it's because, you know, I think in in other films where you find a, a central character like this, the idea is... Look how noble they are. Mm-hmm. Look how strong they are. You know, this person, she's she's not a very mature human being to start with. She's just not suited to deal with what has happened to her. And we're along for the ride. And the movie basically just dares you to judge her. This is director and co-writer Sasha Pollock. Hope I pronounced that right. And she's got the lead. Vicki Knight plays Jade. And it's it's another one of those where... You get some. She's able to take someone who had not done any acting whatsoever, and it's really amazing when you find out that the scars that this character has—that's because the scars are scars that the actress has through a childhood burning accident. Yes, when she was eight years old, uh, her house caught fire, or I think they said it was arsonist. Two of her cousins died, and she was covered thirty percent of her body. With scars, she's never acted before. How she came to this part, I don't know. Um, And it's interesting because, obviously, she brings a level of authenticity to this character, even though she doesn't live anywhere near the same kind of life as this this person. The performance is magnificent, and it's so dialed down. It's Mm -hmm. so understated and and just heartbreaking for that reason. I feel like if if it had been a little bit more high energy or a little bit more obvious of a show we have a performance... The movie, you know, the things that happened, the the crises, the sort of string of crises would have felt like punishment to an audience. I mean, so many, just one upon a, right. another upon another, um, where, where you feel like, you know, you'd think that having acid splashed at you would have been the bottom. Uh, but no, Jade has a lot of rungs yet to fall down before she finds her way back to the top. And and if the film had been any less understated, it would have just felt like the audience was being punished. But it doesn't. I mean, you really are. You're there the whole time. I can't say that I disliked it. I can't say that I had any interest in looking away, even though it's a very grim reality that mm-hmm. she faces. The, I just can't say enough about these performances. And it reminded me of uh, the recent film, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, where... The director found someone for the lead who had never acted before right. and, and draws out this incredible performance. And I, I credit that, obviously, to the performer who has got some natural talent, but I really credit the director Absolutely. as well. Mm-hmm. To, to be able to do that the first time out, that, that takes a lot on both of their parts. So, yeah, it's, it might be a tough watch, but definitely worth checking out. Dirty God. Moving away from the theaters to one that is streaming starting this week, two school friends decide to start a pretend straight relationship in an effort to fit in. It's called Dating Amber. Do you throw a rock at me? I'll go out with you. What? Do you want to go out or not? Okay. What the hell are you doing? We're gay. Gay for boobs. I'm not gay. Yes, you are. So am I. We pretend to go out just until school is over. Jesus, this must be what the inside of your gay brain looks like. <laughs> love it! I love this movie. It's so funny. It's so Irish. The comedy is so just droll and dry and... uh, So Irish. Just try to listen to that trailer we just played. (laughs) I mean, that's... (laughs) Sometimes 
might need a couple of captions. I don't know, because it is Irish. You know, and it's it's just the best, you know. It's like said like early the early nineteen nineties. They really got the time period down pat. Uh, it's an oppressed, you know, s- slightly populated town, and there is one girl that everybody assumes is a lesbian, Amber, and then there's another boy who's very definitely gay, although he is not admitting that even to himself, let alone to anybody else, and so Amber decides, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to date each other, and then everybody else will leave us alone just to get us through to the end of the year. Sure. She is going to take the 2,000 quid that she has put away, and she's going to head to London. She got that money because she lives in a uh, trailer court with her mom, her mom, and she charges t- horny teens ten dollars a pop to just use one of the trailers, and she's she saved up all of this money just doing that so she can get out of town. Smart businesswoman. That's right. But again, I think I mean it's funny, and one of the things that's interesting about this movie is the way it starts off feeling like a very Irish upending of a John Hughes film, very like broadly colorful, big stroke sort mm-hmm. of jokes that land. They're funny, but the longer it goes on, the more you realize there is so much more to this film than that. It really treats its characters with respect. It's really quite heartbreaking in in many instances. And sometimes hard to watch, but resilient and beautiful as well. And the writer-director is David Frayne, and we should say Amber is played by Lola Pettigrew. Yes. And Eddie, here's a, here's an Irish name, Fionn O'Shea. Yes. <laughs> Where are you from? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's a, a, an awful lot to like here. And again, this is one that is streaming. Right. So you should be able to find it. So if you're in the mood for a good comedy, here you go, Dating Amber. And we'll wrap up with another one streaming this week. This is the story of a man telling his kids the magical story of meeting Michael Jordan 25 years later with the original footage. This is Meeting Michael. On November 9th, 1995, I sat courtside thanks to a press pass and shot priceless footage that sat in an attic for 25 years. The sights. The sounds. The heckling fan, and the side of Jordan you've heard about, but have rarely seen. I'm going back to the original tapes to finally tell the entire story of meeting Michael. Now we should say in full disclosure, the writer-director here is a friend of ours. Mm -hmm. He was very uh, nice to us when we went out to L.A., actually visited (laughs) at his home. Right. And uh, it, it really starts with an incredible story that he, he's from here in Columbus, Ohio, right. where we are from. And he actually also used to work in Columbus Radio when he was just 19 years old. And he used that gig to get a press pass to go see the Chicago Bulls in Cleveland. And he was a huge Michael Jordan fan. And he brought along a camcorder when he went to that game. And he had courtside access and he had locker room access. So he got some incredible footage that he actually released about five years ago as a, as a short film. Uh, so some of this footage has been out there, and it got superlatives then. But now he does a really smart thing in making this a feature film. He frames it through telling his kids the story. The first time they're allowed in his fan cave attic, where he's <laughs> got a tremendous array of Michael Jordan memorabilia. I mean, this guy's a fan. And so he tells the story through the the uh, eyes of of the kids learning about their dad's obsession. I think that's a smart move in in reframing this this footage, even if you have seen it before. 
This uh, writer-director is Adam Contras, yes, yes. and he has turned into, I think, a really fascinating documentarian. Uh, he's done two films about the fastest DeLorean, which is a car that he has, which yeah. is a business that he has. And then this third film is, again, you know, what I think he does really well is to mine some pretty fascinating areas of his own life in a way that kind of creates a little bit of a universal truth that everybody can get behind. Yeah, and it's... A situation where a lot of people think they have interesting things in their lives, and maybe you tell somebody else, and yeah, okay, no, th- th- these are pretty <laughs> this interesting. Is, this is I mean, the fact that he's got this—if you want to look up fastest DeLorean, uh, one and two—that's very interesting. And so is this. I mean, Michael Jordan, my lord. Yeah. Um, and it's it's great footage, and he and he tells it well, and he he also has good instincts for answering questions you might be thinking as you're watching right, it. Right, exactly. Know, which is always, always appreciated. So, yeah, especially, I think, for, for Michael Jordan fans and for NBA fans, this is a must. But also, he, he finds a way to turn it into a nice story of sharing your passions. And also, there's a story about some shoes that I won't give away. <laughs> That turns into a nice life lesson. Yes. It's just yep. sweet. And we could all use some sweet right now. Yes. And it is streaming on uh, Amazon, I believe. And, uh, yeah, really enjoyed it. Called Meeting Michael. And that takes us to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. We're back in the lobby, and we've got that, that catchphrase that we tried out last week. Is it, <laughs> is it going to stay, do you think? <laughs> Rock out with your schlock out. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I like the sound of it, so let's keep it at least for another week. Daniel Baldwin, the schlocketeer, is back with the latest news on uh, postponements and reschedulings and I guess one big juicy rumor, too, Ooh. right? Yes. First things first, Universal has sold all of the international rights to their uh, Tom Hanks Western News of the World to Netflix. Um, they're keeping the domestic rights, which basically leads me to believe that the, it'll still open on December 25th theatrically and then probably go to premium VOD in the U.S. sometime in January. I would assume the overseas Netflix premiere will be around that time as well, but we don't quite know just yet. Hmm. And then, speaking of Netflix, they've also set Robert Rodriguez's new movie, which is a superhero kids film called We Can Be Heroes, for a January 1st premiere. And then beyond that, anyone who has been brokenhearted about the fact that they couldn't watch Black Widow or Eternals this year, Disney Plus has set the premiere date for Marvel's WandaVision on January 15th. And while it's a TV show, it's just a six-episode miniseries more along the lines of The Mandalorian than a normal TV program. Hopefully people can enjoy that. Okay, so that is a, just a limited series. As far as I know, yes. Okay, yeah, I, get, I kept getting confused by that. I'm like, is this a movie? What's going on here? But I'm, I'm easily confused, so you are. setting me straight <laughs> there. All right. But it's, it's not hard to get confused with those and then a couple more that are in the pipeline because Marvel's kind of folded their TV division back into their film division, and basically what they're going to be doing is, in addition to producing their blockbuster movies, they're going to be running their TV shows on Disney+. Plus like long-form films, and supposedly there's going to be a whole lot more integration between the movie characters and the TV characters going forward. Mm-hmm. You know, the movie ones will show up on Disney+, Plus, and the Disney Plus characters will start showing up in the movies once they get everything going. Because gotcha. we don't have enough Avengers. We don't already have like <laughs> 30 people to keep track of. Well, don't you want 30 more? <laughs> I don't, no. <laughs> <laughs> 
Speaking of superheroes, the big rumor this week is that Warner Brothers is definitely going to move Wonder Woman 1984 out of 2020. I mean, that's no shocker. No. But supposedly they are deciding whether or not to give it a summer 2020 release date or to send it to HBO Max. Whoa. Wow. I personally have a hard time picturing them doing the latter. I know we've discussed previously that it, it really doesn't make much sense to send a huge blockbuster sequel straight to streaming when you intend on making more of them in the future. Yeah. It'd be one thing if it was the end of the series, but you know, there's going to be a Wonder Woman 3. Wonder Woman is going to show up in other yeah. DC movies. It, it doesn't make sense to do that. And while I have little doubt that Warner Brothers is going to start sending some of their smaller completed films to HBO Max over the next six to nine months, they have at least half a dozen more sensible titles that would be a better fit for it. Like, Taylor Sheridan's got a new movie that they have. There's that Sopranos prequel film, The Many Saints of Newark. There's a new Mortal Kombat movie. There's a Denzel Washington crime film. There's a Tom and Jerry movie. They've got a bunch of stuff that they could send over to streaming without it really punching them in the gut financially like it would if they sent, you know, Wonder Woman 2 or... Suicide Squad 2 or whatever else over to HBO Max. Yeah, I definitely expect it to be moved, but that would that would really surprise me. Yeah, me too. Really. Also, I'm sorry, Tom and Jerry, what? <laughs> I hadn't yeah. even heard about that. I can't even tell you how much I hate Tom and Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> so much fun coming your way. <laughs> All right, news and rumors. <laughs> True or not, we're going to spread them from a Daniel Baldwin. <laughs> you can find him at The Schlocketeer. We'll see you next week. All right. Thanks for having me. All right. Looking ahead to next week. Yeah, we've got a few on here. And it starts with, well, we've got another holiday entry, Star Wars Lego Christmas. Which I know you're... We actually got to see this already, and this is going to be fun to talk about. But George that's... has been impersonating the Emperor Lego <laughs> all week. The Emperor just steals the show. But that that's for next week. What else? Sound of Metal is the one I'm most excited about. Oh, and also Leap of Faith. Now, that is a Shudder documentary about making of The Exorcist. Yes. Very excited for that. Very. The Giant and Embattled. Okay. Collective. And then the other documentary for next week, Truth is the Only Client. The Last Vermeer and another Shudder called Porno. Yep. All right. There's a lot of variation, it seems, next week. We will see. But in the meantime, uh, let us know what you thought of anything this week. Oh, Mel Gibson is Santa Claus. How did that grab you? Let us know. Or Freaky. A lot of fun stuff uh, this week to talk about as well. Always excited to keep the conversation going. If you're up for that, you can find us easily on Twitter. We're at Mad Wolf, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F. Also on Facebook and Instagram. It is Mad Wolf Columbus. And the main website where you can find all of our written reviews and other fun stuff, including our horror movie-only podcast called Fright Club. You can find that at madwolf.com. And we appreciate you dropping by the screening room, as always. If you would, take a second to subscribe, rate, and review. We would appreciate it. Thank you so much. Until next week, she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but... I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Okay, everybody, that's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs>